listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Benjamin Applebaum, who is a reporter at the New York Times, also on the editorial board of the New York Times, and also the author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. As an economist, my suspicions got raised, and I, I said, oh boy, this is going to be a critique of economics, which of course is super welcome because I spent a lot of time critiquing economics on the podcast. And you talk about this Economist's Hour as going from approximately 1969 to 2008. But of course, you go way, way back in time. You go back to the 1930s. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that economists played a fairly marginal role in policy until fairly recently. In the Federal Reserve, you didn't have economists. In most of the regulatory agencies, you didn't have economists. The Department of Treasury was not run by economists. And President Roosevelt was very dismissive of economists. And we didn't really have that kind of dismissiveness again until Donald Trump came back into the White House. So in a way, Franklin Roosevelt and Donald Trump are kind of the bookends of the story. So why the Economist Hour? Where did you get this title? Where'd you get the idea? And how did you decide on the breadth of content within the book? So the title of the Economist's Hour comes from another book by a business historian named Thomas McGraw, who wrote about the evolution of regulation and regulatory policy in the United States. And he observed that economists in the 1970s had really begun to play the central role in shaping regulatory policy. He focused on a man named Alfred Kahn, who was a Cornell economist who came down to Washington to deregulate the airline industry and then became the inflation czar under Jimmy Carter. He referred to this as the economist's hour, the idea being that economists were having their moment at the center of regulatory policy. That book was written in the 1980s. Uh, I didn't read it until the, the aughts and thinking about it even a decade after that, I was struck that the economist's hour hadn't really ended or at least hadn't ended for several more decades, that much of my life had been spent in this economist's hour, and that it hadn't just been in regulatory policy, that economists had played a similarly influential role across a wide range of areas of public policy. And what I found particularly striking about that is that it wasn't always so. I think it's easy to take for granted that the world as we know it, as it is familiar, and to just assume that it's always been that way. But in fact, as the story of Khan indicates, the arrival of economists in, in influential roles in public policy was really a phenomenon of the last quarter of the 20th century, or the last four decades of the 20th century. And telling that story, how that happened, how that came to be, why it happened, and, and what the consequences have been, that's really the story of the Economist's Hour. Well, I remember uh, Thomas McCraw, I trained as a business historian, and so I remember his work. And one of the things that when you study the history, and your book is a great example of this, a lot of the simple dichotomies and dualities that the general public thinks kind of break down, right? So we tend to think in terms of markets versus state, right? Pro-regulation, anti-regulation, pro-business versus anti-business, Keynes versus Friedman. But I think as you describe, it's never quite so simple. And the same positions will often kind of switch sides from time to time. But I think a big part of what your argument is, is that when you kind of weed through all of that, it's not simply the triumph of economics, but there is a particular strain of economics that you think has come to the fore. And in many ways, the book is begins and ends with, with Milton Friedman and kind of the Chicago school. And, and the Chicago school really is the platonic ideal of the economist way of thinking in your narrative. Is that in line with, with how ordinary people think about economics? Do you think that there's this struggle in your book between kind of the, the nuanced view, which is doesn't have as much narrative coherence, and this more narrow view, which tells a compelling story? I think that Milton Friedman, who, as you say, is a central character in my book, was a uniquely influential economist in American life. His success in framing ideas in ways that were accessible and attractive to policymakers in making the case uh, for the implementation of those ideas, I think he was a singular force in public policy among economists. And so his narrative is very central to my book. But I think it's really important to stress that I don't think of the revolution that I describe in my book 
as having been purely the ascendance of the Chicago School of Economics. I think that the Chicago School of Economics rose in the same period that economics became influential in public policy. But really, one of the central themes of my book is that on many of the key issues of public policy, there was a broad degree of agreement among mainstream economists. And by mainstream economists, I mean to include not only the Chicago School, but also, you know, what's something called the freshwater-saltwater dichotomy. However you want to describe it, there were disagreements among economists. They thought of themselves as members of different schools. And yet on many key issues, they fundamentally agreed. And those agreements were profoundly influential in shaping public policy. Because when you're in a situation where the economists ostensibly of the left and the economists ostensibly of the right are both telling policymakers the same thing. For example, that unions are bad or that free trade is good or that minimum wage laws are useless or that antitrust policy is overreaching. In all of these areas, you had this broad degree of consensus among economists of different political persuasions. And that is what was so influential. It's not that the Chicago School co-opted public policy. It's that on many issues, Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson, sort of the avatar of, of this other school, were in agreement, saw the world in very similar terms. And to the extent that they disagreed, they disagreed about the fine details of policy. And it was that consensus among economists that I think was so important in this period in convincing policymakers to take the ideas of economics more seriously. Well, I think a lot of economists would claim that they are simply in the business of positive scientific inquiry, right? And they'd say, well, look, all we're doing is analyzing, all we're doing is explaining, all we're doing is predicting, right? Even Milton Friedman said the test of a theory is its capacity for prediction. And yet these economists, they have a foot in policy, right? They're out there advocating things. They're very, very normative. When you talk about kind of economic consensus, is there a difference between kind of economic consensus around the positive approach, or is it more the consensus around the normative approach? I mean, it's one thing to talk about efficiency, and it's another to kind of advocate policies that promote this goal of efficiency, right? I think that there obviously are many economists who want to make this claim for a kind of positive scientific discipline that exists outside the context of public policy and that analyzes issues in sort of a cold and analytical fashion, detached from the conclusions that they're hoping to reach. In practical terms, it's, it's hard to see the evidence of it. I mean, there clearly are economists who are engaged in extremely theoretical or extremely purely mathematical work. I, I don't mean to deny their existence, but the living, breathing heart of economics has always been political economy, as the field used to be called. It is inextricably intertwined with the project of governing society. It is a language for talking about public policy, for analyzing public policy, for understanding the choices that societies confront. And I think when economists are honest about that enterprise, they recognize that they are fundamentally engaged in a work that has normative content, that has normative presumptions, that is inherently political in its character. Friedman used to say that the work of a good economist, you shouldn't be able to tell their political beliefs by looking at their work. And his wife used to say that he was being ridiculous. And I'm on his wife's side. She was absolutely right. If you show me the work of an economist, I can tell you a great deal about their political beliefs with a high degree of accuracy. And there's a reason for that. Right. Well, do you think it's the political beliefs that shape the intellectual inquiry? Or is it more that this particular intellectual inquiry inevitably leads you towards certain political beliefs? I think it's a two-way street. I think when you look carefully at the lives of great economists and sort of attempt to analyze that question of what did they come into it thinking and, and what did they learn from their work, you often see a kind of dialogue playing out. You can see the influences of of their prior beliefs, of the way that they were raised, of the ideas inculcated by their teachers, and you can see the influence of their work, and you can see the ways that it tested and stretched them, and, and the circumstances in which they lived shaped them, and, and I think the good ones respond to that additional information over time and, and change the way that they think, but it's never the case that people entirely abandon the places that they started. And so you can really see economists wrestling with fact patterns that are inconvenient and arriving at conclusions that attempt to sort of reconcile the inconvenience to bring it back to what they were hoping to see in the first place. And this, I don't mean to suggest that any of this is at all unique of economists. You know, this is true of, I think, anyone engaged in intellectual pursuits, that you are both shaped by what you're experiencing and encountering and by where you came from. So I think it's both things. Well, what do you think is lost when, say, economists have a larger place at the table and they're squeezing out mostly lawyers, I think, in a lot of these public policy roles. 
What's the trade-off here? I think you you emphasize this point about efficiency, and I, and I love how you talked about kind of Caldor Hicks efficiency, which is something that welfare economists spend a lot of time talking about. That's usually the criteria that people use when they're trying to evaluate the welfare impacts of policy. And you kind of argue that this concept is has been, I don't know, say misused because it fails to account for the real costs and these costs could be compensated, but they're not ultimately. And that, that's something that the economists kind of more or less wash their hands of and say, that's not our problem. Is the main problem with the economists' place at the table that they overemphasize efficiency as a goal in public policy? I think there's a couple of, of levels of concern. So first, they want to emphasize that I think in many respects, the rise of economists in public policy has had huge benefits. In many respects, it has brought really valuable insight and discipline, in particular discipline, to the business of decision-making. It, it has forced a rational consideration of the trade-offs inherent in public policy decisions. It has made things explicit that previously were implicit or ignored. It has been enormously valuable in many respects. But I think there are a couple of ways in which economics leaves something to be desired. And we've not always been sort of sufficiently aware of those downsides in ways that might allow us to compensate for them. One, as you say, is the emphasis on efficiency. Economics, it, particularly in the period we're talking about, was pretty explicit in arguing that there was a trade-off between efficiency and distribution. That if you wanted to redistribute, it would come at the cost of efficiency, that the consequence would be less economic growth. And this idea, which was shared by economists on both the right and the left, although they disagreed a little bit about what one should make of it, really, really took hold of public policymaking. There was really this idea that the role of government was to focus on making the pie as large as possible, that in order to do that, you needed to set aside to some extent the questions of distribution, or at least deal with them only after the pie was baked. And that this was really the central contribution of economists was this argument for the, the primacy of efficiency. So that's number one. Uh, and I think that that was clearly overdone. We now have economists who are finding very compelling evidence that as with most things, excess has negative consequences. A second element that I think is really important and that doesn't get as much attention is that economics really emphasizes things that can be measured. It really puts a premium on the things that can be quantified and included in the equation and has a lot of trouble dealing with the presence of things that can't. One of the stories I tell in the book, which I just think is such an amazing story, is about the RAND Corporation and its first major assignment, which was to analyze the best way to blow up the Soviet Union. And the economists there and, and their colleagues worked very hard on a formula analyzing the cost of bombs and the cost of planes and all of these things. And they came to the Air Force with the results of their study, which basically advocated for sending a lot of planes into the teeth of the Soviet defenses because some of them would get through. And the Air Force looked at this and said, what about the pilots? And the RAND folks said, well, how do you put a price on pilots? They were aware, of course, that pilots would die, but they didn't know how to put a value on pilots. And so they couldn't include it in their formula. And the Air Force, which is run by pilots, they were, of course, aghast and, and sent RAND back to the drawing board. And there were two schools of thought at RAND. And these two school thoughts, this is enormously important and indicative of subsequent developments. This is the 1950s. The first school said, these are incommensurable. We cannot measure the value of life People are going to have to look at the things we can measure and make whatever normative judgments they want to about the value of life and arrive at a decision. This is beyond the scope of economics, and we need to acknowledge those limitations. And the other school, which ultimately prevailed, although it took several decades, said, no, we are going to develop a methodology for placing a value on life. We are going to incorporate human life into cost-benefit analysis, and on that basis, we're going to move forward. And the advocates of that approach basically argued compellingly in, in many respects that things that couldn't be valued would be ignored in policymaking, that if you couldn't put a price tag on it, it wasn't going to have a seat at the table. And I think to this day that remains true. And the dominant response in economics has been to try to assign values to more and more things, the value of lost time, the value of, of a view that is no longer available, the value of a sunny day, and not to grapple with the question of, well, aren't there some things that we're never going to value properly? And how do we include those in a rational decision-making process? So I think that's a second leg of the problem as well. The story you tell about how the statistical value of life came about is a compelling one. I mean, I think you could write an entire book about that. An economist might say something to the effect that, look, the statistical value of life, that's not something that we're going to determine. But, you know, what we will do is we will help decision makers to be more consistent or be aware of kind of the implied value of life that policymakers are, are using. So if a policymaker is 
saving life in one area at the cost of $10 million and saving another life in another area at the cost of 500000 then that would suggest a reallocation of resources towards the, the latter policy initiative. And so they would say, we're not going to step in here. We're simply going to help make these things explicit for the policymakers ultimately to decide. Right. And that's useful. So the value of statistical life, which is this attempt to do what you're describing, can be extremely useful in highlighting the type of imbalances that you're describing and, and raising questions about whether policies are actually, you know, optimized, again, for efficiency or whether we're spending too much in some areas or not enough in other areas, no doubt that's all very useful. But the use of VSL is pushed well beyond that, right? It's become sort of a red line test, for example, for environmental policies and the ability of the federal government to sustain environmental regulations against legal challenges often rests on the premise that the value of life is calculated in a way that is meaningful and that if you multiply the number of lives saved by the dollar value, and you get a figure that is smaller than the cost of a new policy, the court is going to let it stand. And if the opposite is true, then the court is not going to let it stand. And that's a level of precision that doesn't actually exist. At that point, this is a, a farce. It's playing with numbers in a way that isn't rooted in reality. It's a convenient formula that creates the appearance of certainty about something about which we do not have that degree of certainty. Well, I like how in your recounting of the story, you talk about how this principle was being used by opponents of regulation. And so they would consistently try to tear down regulations that had a cost of life that was higher than the threshold. But of course, once they did that, this opened up the door for all sorts of advocates of, of regulation to identify potential areas where lives could be saved at that cost of life that the opponents had introduced. And so throughout the book, that's one of your key insights is that these principles, which may be introduced by interested parties that are trying to advocate a particular policy goal, once they're kind of on the table, then they're kind of available for anybody to use, right? And this then creates a much more robust debate. The other story that you, you tell at the very beginning of the book, which I found very interesting, which I had knew nothing about, was the origins of the anti-draft movement in policy that was motivated primarily by economists. Could you tell us a bit about that story? This is something I don't think very many people know this story at all. It's an amazing story. And I, I start the book with it because it remains surprising to me as well. And I think it's not a well-known story. And it illustrates so much about this Economist's Hour revolution that we're talking about. So to be clear, there was an anti-war and anti-draft movement in the 1960s that had nothing to do with economists. Many Americans were very upset about the war in Vietnam and about the idea that young men were being conscripted to participate in that war. But... That is not why the United States ended military conscription. The people who were members of that school were not the ones who were influential in the Nixon administration, which fought very hard to end the draft. The reason that Richard Nixon fought to end the draft, the reason that he created a presidential commission and invested significant political capital in eliminating the draft is because he was convinced by economists that the draft was not the best way to fight wars. And that indeed it would be easier to continue fighting wars like the war in Vietnam if you ended military conscription. The idea in simple terms, I often describe it basically as the idea that the United States would be better off if Sergeant Elvis Presley was sent back to private life and allowed to go on singing and someone else was paid to be a soldier in his place. Or Corporal Willie Mays was allowed to go swing baseball bats and someone else was paid to serve in his place. The idea was that a draft is a ridiculous way to decide who serves in the military from an economic perspective. It is much better from an economic perspective to use a market mechanism in which you say to people, will you serve if we pay you this much? And keep on raising that salary until you've acquired enough soldiers to meet the need. You'll end up with people who are more excited about serving, more likely to remain in the army, more likely to have the skills that you need or to be able to develop those skills over time. And you will not be wasting other people who would make much larger contributions to society and who would have a much higher reservation wage because they know that they should be doing something else for society. And so there's just this incredible inefficiency in creating a military through a system of conscription. And this argument, which was advanced by Milton Friedman and by many of his intellectual allies during the 1960s, reached Richard Nixon's ears, and he found it enormously compelling. He thought that made very good sense, and that the economics of how much you would actually have to pay to have a volunteer military were compelling as well, because there had always been sort of this idea that it would cost so much to convince people to serve that, you know, even if in some abstract 
sense that was desirable, it was infeasible. And economists, including a man named Walter Oy, an economist at Rochester, has a fascinating story, a fascinating person. I had lost his sight and did equations in his head, just an amazing story. But anyways, he was, he was the one who worked out the math of how much it would cost, and he was right. He was born out, essentially. The United States ended conscription in the early 1970s, has had a volunteer army ever since then, and it has worked in the way that economists predicted. This insertion of economics into a realm of policy that previously had been dominated by different sets of values and different means of decision-making is exactly what we're talking about in this revolution. Economists arrived and said, basically, there's a way to make these decisions that is better for essentially everyone. And it is more rational and will produce better results for society and for the individuals who are involved. They convinced policymakers to listen. The rules were rewritten in accordance with the rules of economics. And the result was as predicted. And in, in the case of the draft, I think on the whole positive, although there are some downsides as well that are deserving of consideration. Well, what I found interesting about the story is that it highlighted the lack of coherence among the political parties, right? I mean, you had fiscal conservatives who were opposing this initiative. You had pro-war, anti-war people that were split on this issue. And so back in those days, there, there wasn't this immediate coalescence on, on one side or the other of these issues, but there seemed to be more a better understanding of the trade-offs in these different initiatives. Yeah, the anti-war wing in Congress largely favored the continuation of the draft. They saw it as a tool for equity. And it was pro-war people in Congress who ultimately voted to end the draft because they saw it as a means of maintaining a viable strategy to continue the war, paying people to prosecute it rather than drafting them. But you see this again and again with the arrival of economics in public policy is that it scrambles existing coalitions. It, it breaks people along unpredictable fault lines because it's changing the logic, right? It's a new way of looking at the world and it has unpredictable consequences. It forces people to trade off values that they thought were aligned and economics comes along and basically says, no, in fact, there's a trade-off here. Which is more important to you? Which way do you want to go? And again and again, you see the political parties realigning around these issues, around issues of taxation, of debt, of foreign trade policy, of monetary policy, making different choices than they had made previously, dividing along new lines. And I think it's really an underrated factor in the political realignments of, of the mid-century United States is the degree to which the arrival of this new language of policymaking created shifts in political alliances. Right. And you discuss how the military was looking into different ways of spending their budget. You mentioned the RAND initiative. This kind of put a monkey wrench into all the decision-making because before that, it was a very political process, right? And there wasn't really any way of articulating what the objectives were and, and what the constraints were. And you talk about how when they, they moved to the submarine launchers or the Minuteman missiles, that this was primarily driven by economics. It's again, one of these situations in which things that we now take so completely for granted were revolutions in their own right. And so in the years after World War II, the different branches of the military jealously guard their independence. They each advance their own budgetary priorities. Congress is not totally willing. It's not a carte blanche situation, but Congress is essentially voting for the narratives put forward by each of these services. And there's really no mechanism. There's no budgeting process. There's no mechanism for sort of saying, here's how much money we have in total. Here are the best ways to spend it, given this set of goals. Under Presidents Kennedy and, and Johnson, particularly under Johnson, the military and other branches of the government are forced to begin a budgeting process that now just seems like nature. Now, no organization would think not to have a process like this, but asks the military branches essentially, what are you trying to accomplish? And forces the Air Force and the Navy to acknowledge, for example, that they both are attempting to develop exactly the same kind of missile. Okay, are we going to really do that twice? No, we need to decide which one to do. And again and again, Congress confronts these decisions I found this amazing hearing before the Senate in which the chairman of, of the committee, he sounds like he's almost on the verge of tears, basically, telling these economists who've come before him, we've never seen these numbers, but we've never had this explained to us in this way before. You've opened our eyes. We've never had an accounting of what we're doing that was as clear or as helpful as this. And you can just see, it's like watching a Neanderthal pick up a tool for the first time or something. Like they had been empowered by this new methodology, and it changed the way that the government ran. Right. And I think another point you're making is that a lot of the initiatives that we oftentimes associate with certain 
sides in political debates actually danced around on both sides. And, and in particular, you go back to the Kennedy administration to find the origins of kind of supply side economics, as we call it now. And in the Jimmy Carter administration, you find that the deregulation movement that Ronald Reagan became famous for, it really was kicked off under Jimmy Carter, right? Not just with the deregulation of the airlines, but the deregulation of cargo freight and, and trucking and, and so many other initiatives that were begun under Jimmy Carter. Could you talk a bit about that, the supply side revolution back in the, in the Kennedy administration, and then maybe a little bit about the underappreciated role of Jimmy Carter in deregulation? So the 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli has this famous observation that much of the reform legislation of that era was passed by conservative administrations. It's a, a fact he summarized as Tory men and Whig measures, meaning that it was ultimately conservatives who were the most effective reformers. In this period I'm calling the Economist's Hour, what you see is basically the opposite pattern in which it was often liberal politicians who were the most effective reformers the most effective in implementing these ideas or in injecting them into the public policy realm because they basically were validating those ideas by embracing them. Ideas that were seen as conservative became mainstream through the embrace of, of democratic politicians and through the acceptance of democratic politicians. And so you've just mentioned two instances of that. The first is the turn in tax policy that begins under President Kennedy. Uh, until that time in the post-war years, tax rates, statutory tax rates are very high. The top marginal tax rates, I mean, exceed, you know, 90%. Corporate tax rates are well above 50%. The government is working on a very narrow tax base, but with very high rates. And the Kennedy administration begins to embrace the idea that there is an economic benefit, a stimulative effect in reducing tax rates, that that will give people more incentive to invest, more incentive to spend. They frame it as a Keynesian measure, to call it a supply-side measure, is to describe it in a language that didn't exist at that time. But what it shares with the eventual rise of the supply-side movement is this intuition and this theory that if you reduce tax rates, you can create a benefit and potentially, in, in theory, in some situations, perhaps even a benefit large enough to result in a net increase in government revenue. And so this assertion, which is original to the Kennedy administration, is then revived in the late 1970s by a new movement that's extremely focused on reducing top tax rates and makes the argument most famously in the voice of Arthur Laffer that you can actually increase government revenue by reducing tax rates. But that's sort of the, the reductio ad absurdum of supply-side economics. The, the core of it, which was a powerful insight, was that the government was ignoring the supply side of the economy. The government was so focused on demand-side policies that it wasn't paying attention to the problems that had been created on the supply side or to the opportunity to improve economic conditions and economic growth by addressing those problems. And so the argument that deregulation could lift a foot from the neck of economic growth, the argument that by reducing tax rates, you could lift a foot from the neck of economic growth. These became very powerful ideas in the 1970s, were embraced by both parties to a point. The thing I often say about supply-side economics is what often goes by that name today is the portion that was so absurd and extreme that it wasn't embraced as consensus. But much of what was initially advocated for just became mainstream and normal and, and slip beyond the use of that label and, and its opprobrium, it just became the conventional approach to policy. Nobody is today advocating for returning tax rates to anything like where they were in the mid-century. And that's a real legacy of this revolution. Carter and deregulation is another fantastic example of this. The government in the decades after World War II really took very seriously the idea that it could improve economic performance by managing prices in key areas of the economy, transportation, communications in particular. And it did this aggressively, and it did it in ways that were hugely distortive. So, you know, the airlines end up being the most famous example of this. You have government bureaucrats running around chasing people selling discount airline tickets as if it were some kind of threat to national security and absurd workarounds where people would become instant members of the Sons of Caledonia in order to travel to Scotland for the summer under an exemption in in the rules governing airfares to the British Isles. And so the Carter administration, there are a series of sort of, this becomes increasingly absurd and difficult to sustain all through the 70s. There are government hearings at which the absurdities of this system are aired at great length. 
and with considerable effect. But it's ultimately the Carter administration that seizes the bull by the horns and says, "Okay, we're going to deal with this problem. We're going to make the case to the American people that the airlines should be deregulated and that air cargo should be deregulated and that trucking should be deregulated and that railroads should be deregulated. And they do this successively. And it's an enormous success story. (laughs) I mean, the economic benefits are huge. There are consequences that we're still dealing with today. Not everything goes perfectly, but on the whole, economists are enormously successful in basically saying, listen, if we've learned anything during this past century, it's that government should get out of the business of managing prices. And we did. And that was a good thing. Well, I think another story that you talk about is the collapse of fixed exchange rates. The Bretton Woods system you talk about, which was set up by economists, and then it was ultimately destroyed by economists. It was probably more destroyed by macro factors, but the economists provide the framework by which it will be disassembled. And and Milton Friedman plays a huge role here. But what I find fascinating about the story is how sudden it was and how unexpected it was, right? So if you talk to the folks who are running monetary policy, the folks at the Federal Reserve just prior to the collapse of of Bretton Woods, I think they all thought that there was no chance in hell that this system was going to collapse. And then once it began to collapse, it, it collapsed almost immediately in a very short period of time. So is that a microcosm of how the shift in who's really driving the policy changed from people, I think Federal Reserve was originally run by by bankers and lawyers and then gradually with Arthur Burns coming in and then Volcker coming in and Greenspan, we just see an increase in, in the number of economists who are involved in, in the Federal Reserve and ultimately the impact of these economist ideas on what happens. So I think the story of the end of the Bretton Woods system is a fascinating one. It's a really complicated one. It's not a story that, you know, we've talked about the easy victories of of ending the draft or of ending airline regulation. The end of exchange rates, which actually is the first in the chronological sequence, it's really the first time that these free market ideas or Friedman's ideas about the role of government really break through and are adopted. This one, it's not as clear a story in terms of the moral of it. So basically what you have is a system that is a conventional system, a hidebound system that people are deeply committed to that is being defended at a growing cost, particularly during the 1960s. The United States has agreed to stabilize its exchange rate with other developed nations, and it's having to defend those exchange rates. It's getting harder and harder to maintain. It wasn't exactly a gold standard. It was a dollar standard, but it was based on the idea that the United States would pay out gold on demand. And the United States basically needed to, during the 1960s, progressively restrict the circumstances under which it would actually honor that promise until it was essentially impossible to redeem dollars for gold to maintain the fiction at the heart of the Bretton Woods system. The United States simultaneously is desperately searching for gold. At one point, they consider using nuclear bombs to mine for gold. It was getting pretty crazy. And what happens, the Fed is actually not involved in the end of Bretton Woods, except that it vigorously opposes it and is horrified by it and is surprised by it, as you say. Burns was fighting it tooth and nail, right? And he was an economist. Yeah, well past the 11th hour. He's running the Fed and he does not like this at all. But what happens is that Friedman makes an end run around the bureaucracy. He convinces Nixon and and Nixon's Treasury Secretary, John Connolly, initially just to suspend the redeemability of dollars for gold. And then once that's done, he convinces George Shultz, who's basically one of his disciples, to end the system and to float the dollar. And If you study history, you have drilled into you the limited role that any individual plays in the unfolding of events. There are times when individuals are really significant, and George Schultz's role in ending the Bretton Woods system, I think, is one of those times. Nixon trusted him, and Schultz got to decide, and he decided to end it. And the reason he decided to end it is because Milton Friedman told him it was a good idea. And I'm not sure the story is a lot more complicated than that. I mean, if there hadn't been a crisis, he wouldn't have had the opportunity. But he was the guy who was sitting in the chair at the moment that the decision needed to be made. And Schultz basically refused to talk to other countries about fixing the problems. He refused to negotiate a new system with the Europeans. He simply allowed it to collapse because he believed that floating exchange rates would be better. And and what happens next is fascinating. So you get economists exerting this enormous influence, reshaping the nature of policy in this critical area. And they're wrong about almost everything. They said it would be a more stable system. They said, you know, it turns out to be much more unstable. But they're right in some sense that it ends up being economically beneficial in many ways. It certainly has never been 
bad enough that there has been any success in building a constituency for restoring any kind of Bretton Woods system. The United States has lived with the consequences, which have included the industrialization, but also the rise of our financial industry. It's played a big role in reshaping our economy. It was a hugely consequential decision. Whether it was good or bad, I think is is awfully hard to say, but it was definitely consequential. Well, I find it interesting also that Friedman played a role in the creation of the currency futures markets. That's, of course, one of the largest markets in the planet right now. And he was there at the ground floor helping to get that off the ground. Yeah, he was. You know, he had this theory that part of what you needed, if you're going to float the dollar as he thought it should be floated, then you needed a market in which traders could bet on the ups and downs to limit volatility. And he pitched this idea to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which was looking for new products. And it was one of these sort of serendipitous conversations that resulted in the creation of, of the futures market that ended up being hugely profitable, but has not noticeably diminished the volatility of exchange rates. Friedman had a role in sort of, and this is Friedman's genius, right? Like a lot of economists had views about exchange rates, favored the same policy as Friedman, perhaps, or at least were influenced by his arguments. Friedman was very unusual in being an academic economist of the highest caliber who was willing to engage with something as down and dirty as how exactly you should create a futures market, how exactly you should create a, a market in, in exchange and to lend his name to the promotional materials for that market and to advocate to the Treasury Secretary for it to be permitted to operate. And he was a policy entrepreneur. He was a guy who actually cared deeply about carrying his ideas into practice and was enormously successful in doing so. I'm old enough to remember when Milton Friedman had his TV show, right? Free to Choose on PBS. I think it was 1980. I'm just trying to imagine how you would pitch that to a sponsor. We're going to have a miniseries about economics. And yet this thing turned out to be tremendously successful and attracted a massive audience of people who were otherwise unfamiliar with, with economics. One of the big stories of that is that you've got sort of a rising self-awareness in the business community of a unity of interest among businesses and, and a desire to assert a larger role in public policy. And so part of the story is about a group of economists and public policy intellectuals like Friedman advocating for new ideas. Part of the story, absolutely crucial part of the story, is the way that they made common cause with very powerful and very deep-pocketed individual and corporate interests who saw these arguments as very consistent with their own goals. You know, when Friedman famously advocated in the early 1970s for corporations to focus on profits and profits alone to the exclusion of any other sense of what the public interest might be, there were a lot of corporate executives who said, hallelujah. And when the collection plate was passed around, they were eager to throw money into it. And so what you have is this growing assertiveness of this viewpoint, this demand that it should be heard, that there should be a rebuttal to what was still conventional wisdom in public policy circles. And so PBS had aired a series of documentaries starring John Kenneth Galbraith, who was sort of the voice of liberal economics. And there was this demand from conservatives for equal time in some sense that Americans should have the opportunity to hear the other side of the story. And there was no difficulty in raising the money for Friedman to be that presenter. Certain corporations happened to back it. Probably, you know, a hundred others would have gladly done it in their place. By the early 1980s, you had a, an assertive corporate movement advocating for market principles and willing to back people like Friedman in, in making that case. One of the stories that you tell is really the rise of the, the law and economics movement and how our thinking around antitrust changed so dramatically. I think in the early days of antitrust, it was understood that the purpose of antitrust was to protect the small producer, the small business person. And then it shifted and became all about protecting the consumer. And this had profound consequences for the size and shape of businesses in the modern economy. Maybe talk a little bit about that story because this is an area that I know pretty well and the expert testimony became very important and lawyers started to think about economics. And, and it went from being a world where the economists were in the basement and the lawyers were kind of their overlords to a world where, hey, the, the economists had to be taken seriously and they were the ones that were really dictating what the ultimate outcome was gonna be, not in policy, but even in, in courts. The evolution of antitrust policy is really sort of a microcosm for the evolution of American politics and society in many ways over the last century. So 
antitrust, as you say, begins in the late 19th century, and it really begins as a concern about corporate size, about the concentration of corporate power as a threat to small businesses, as a threat to American democracy, and its advocates explicitly argued as a threat to the American way of life. The idea was that these new big concerns were un-American in some fundamental sense and needed to be broken up in order to preserve the equilibrium of American life in which small business owners could earn a living, maintain a business, have the independence, the political and personal independence of being proprietors. This was all sort of essential to the American identity, and that's the origin of the antitrust movement. And over time, it becomes increasingly ineffective, frankly, in constraining the growth of big business. During the Great Depression, the government makes common cause with big business to revive the economy while tipping its hat in the direction of antitrust. And so there's a sense that antitrust has lost its way and lost its purpose. And by the 1960s, you have corporations complaining with a good deal of basis that antitrust has become kind of random, that the government is attacking particular corporations, but without rhyme or reason, without articulating a clear sense of what it is that's problematic about corporate conduct or that ought not to be allowed. And economists, again, are beginning to emerge in this period as referees, as articulated, as rationalizers of public policy, basically, as people who are coming into the public square and saying, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? What's our theory? How does it comport with the facts? How do we move forward? And you get a series of efforts to articulate a new standard for antitrust in this period. First around the idea that there are structural considerations, that particular alignments of corporate power economically problematic. But the idea that wins is a consumerist idea. In this period, Americans who originally thought of themselves as farmers and then as, as workers in factories are coming to think of themselves primarily as consumers. The government is increasingly invested in a consumerist state, in making sure that people can consume what they want. And antitrust is reconfigured around that ideal. The idea becomes that the role of antitrust policy is to protect the consumer interest of Americans. That if a deal is going to increase consumer prices, it is problematic. And if it is not going to increase consumer prices, then it is not problematic. And this idea, which is articulated by economists and by lawyers who are trained by economists, many of them coming out of the University of Chicago's law school, which is unique in that period in having a heavy influence of economists teaching there, particularly a man named Aaron Director, who happened to be Milton Friedman's brother-in-law, are coming to articulate, and one of his disciples, Robert Bork, becomes the foremost proponent of this new view, this idea that the standard of antitrust enforcement should be consumer welfare as measured by consumer prices. And the Supreme Court, during the course of the 1970s, embraces this logic. Nixon consciously appoints a series of judges to the court who are very pro-business in their orientation and to arrive determined to, they would say, essentially, to rationalize the state's treatment of business. Others might say to tilt the playing field in favor of business. But the bottom line is you get a series of decisions gradually shifting antitrust enforcement in the direction of this Bork standard. And finally, under Reagan, the executive branch essentially aligns itself with what the judiciary already has done. And you have a new antitrust regime which is incredibly coherent, right? There's now a clear sense of the purpose of antitrust, but also incredibly narrow in its focus, in only focusing on consumer prices. And even in the enforcement of that standard, leaning in favor of corporations, essentially demanding proof that corporations are going to raise prices, not just the suspicion, not just the possibility, but actual evidence. And so the effect is that basically everything goes through. Antitrust is vitiated as a regulatory regime we see a huge consolidation beginning in the 1980s, industry after industry, really beginning with the meatpacking industry for reasons that aren't important. But that becomes the industry that sort of tests these new principles and takes it through the courts. And then lots of other industries follow. So the older ideas get discarded. Even the new idea isn't really enforced. It's an example of a realm in which the economic principles around consumer prices could have resulted in a very different regulatory regime. You could have imagined a much more rigid enforcement of that principle. So it's not just the influence of economists. It's an economic idea being seized upon by corporate interests and their political allies, carried into practice in a very particular way with a very particular set of outcomes. And that's the world we live in today, is a world in which, for all intents and purposes, antitrust enforcement is a dead letter in the United States. Now, toward the end of the book, 
you start getting closer and closer to the the financial crisis, which is in many ways kind of the end of the economist hour in, in your narrative. And there's so much more that I think you could have probably done with that portion of the book, because really that time period immediately before the financial crisis is maybe the pinnacle of hubris. <laughs> Some would say that people had, at least economists had come to the belief that they had almost eradicated economic cycles and that there really was no reason for extensive regulation of financial markets. And you begin the narrative with how Reg Q was eliminated and for banks. And then that sort of set in motion a whole bunch of things, which led to the extensive market for credit derivatives. When you look at that period, is that really the last hurrah of this economist notion? Because in a way, right, when the financial crisis happened, it was more or less fixed or solved by a technique that was created by Milton Friedman. So Milton Friedman was there to save the day when the crisis happened. Does that mean that the economist hour is, we're still in it and it's a false sunset for economists? I'd say a couple of things about that. The first is that I think the period of certainty that you describe in the aughts in the first decade of the 21st century, the degree to which economists were confident that they understood how the economy worked, were confident that they had set the controls in a way that was conducive to stable long-term growth and broad prosperity, and the extent to which policymakers trusted that economists knew what they were doing, deferred to them. This is most visible in the person of Alan Greenspan, who is venerated as a minor deity in these years, and who was seen as just understanding the way the world worked and was deferred to on issues well beyond his core competencies, that era comes to a crashing end with the global financial crisis. That degree of veneration, of deference, of trust in economists, I think is not going to be recovered, at least while living memory of those events is with us. And I think that that is what I mean by the end of the economist's hour, is that this period of growing and ultimately unquestioned influence over the direction of economic policy really reaches its end point with the global financial crisis because the events so clearly fly in the face of what we had been told with such great confidence was and was not possible, was, would, and would not happen. And it was clear that these people ultimately didn't know what they were talking about or, or were far too confident in what they said about the nature of the economy and the way that it worked. So with that said, I want to be clear that what I'm not arguing is that economists magically disappeared in, you can pick your month, November 2008, whatever, or that they no longer had any influence thereafter or that they will not going forward. Clearly, economics remains, in many important respects, the language of public policymaking. Clearly, economists remain very influential. But I think that as in the 1930s and the 1970s, we are in a period of profound disruption and uncertainty about what conventional economic wisdom is or what the basic approach to policy should be. And so you have both economists and other kinds of thinkers. I think the space is more open than it was before the crisis arguing about what those principles are, what we actually know, what role government should play in the economy, what is constructive, and how we move forward. And some of those ideas come from Friedman, undoubtedly. And there are things that he said that remain valuable and, and widely regarded and, and accepted. Some of those ideas come from very different places. And there's this huge turmoil around these ideas and uncertainty around what ideas should prevail. And Donald Trump was an embodiment of that. I mean, not just in his in his disregard of economists, he was almost a caricature of what I'm talking about, right? Like, it's not actually the case that the way that Donald Trump talked about economists is where we're going to be going forward. Like, he was disdainful of economists in a way that's not the future, right? But Joe Biden is a much more interesting example in this respect. This is a guy who really towed the line of conventional economics through much of his career in Washington, accepted what passed for conventional wisdom on most of these issues, and now has surrounded himself with competing schools of economists who disagree about many of those ideas and are arguing about them. And in some respects, he's actively broken with things that once would have been taken for granted. The Fed has actively broken with the principles that it espoused during the economists' hour. There are still economists at the Fed, of course, and there will be forevermore. But the economists are no longer sure of what the government's role in the economy should look like. And that that's a new era. That's different. So in a sense, to call it the end of the economist's hour has 
a connotation that I think many people find confusing. Maybe I should find a better term for it. But what has ended is that era of supremacy and certainty. And we're in a very different place now. Well, and I think if we look at some of the, the largest issues of our time in the last year or two, look at the coronavirus crisis and we look at the culture wars and the ethnic and diversity issues that we're faced with, economists seem to be notoriously silent. Their input into optimal policy formation during both of these crises has, has been relatively minimal. I wonder if that's a sign of the times. I've heard some economists say that it's been a failure of the economics profession because people have not, economists have not offered solutions. Is it that they lack the imagination or is it that we as a society have basically tuned them out and decided that there are other values that we're going to bring to the front and we're going to push the kind of things that economists talk about to the rear? So I think that there's some of both undoubtedly. I mean, I don't think economists have been entirely absent from these debates. I'm probably a person who hears more of what they have to say than the average American just because I'm listening. But I think that they have, in some respects, made valuable contributions and will continue to do so. But yes, I mean, the straightforward answer to your question is that if you are a member of a community that has spent half a century insisting that economic efficiency is the lodestar and that public policy should be measured in terms of efficiency, and you arrive in a historical moment in which people are increasingly concerned about the distribution of prosperity and about inequalities and are, are seeking public policies, often willfully inefficient public policies, as being the best for society, there is going to be a sidelining of the members of the community that advocated a very different view, in part because they're taking some of the blame for where we are. People look at the advice that they gave and say, okay, well, that's how we got here. We listened to you and these were the consequences, in part because the advice they're now giving doesn't seem relevant to the goals that people are placing value upon and the things that they're seeking to accomplish. And so if, for example, you are an advocate who thinks that the federal government should find some way of driving the black unemployment rate down toward the white unemployment rate, and you want the central bank to be involved in that, economists can all agree that the central bank doesn't have meaningful tools to address that. And what will happen is that the economists will be sidelined because that's not an acceptable answer from the perspective of the advocates who see a righteous problem and want solutions to it. So the challenge for economics is to be relevant to the concerns that people have and to convince them that it offers a meaningful way of approaching those problems. You're right. At, at its heart, economics is really a uh, political economy in many ways. And so I'm fairly confident that economists will become more relevant and inject themselves into these conversations as time goes on. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This book, Economist Hour, it's full of fascinating stories. It's a work of history. It's a work of economics. It's a work of reportage. I enjoyed it a lot. We didn't even talk about your expedition to Chile and your discussion of the, the Chicago boys down there, which I found fascinating. You talk about Iceland. There's a whole bunch of other wonderful narratives. And so I recommend that people go check out the book and find out for themselves. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.